Our lives are framed every day by data and statistics, though we may not always be aware of that fact. Helping us make sense of this universe of data is the goal of many an economist, statistician, and journalist. It's also the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as usual, our panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Tim Harford, author of the books Messy, The Undercover Economist, and The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics that was just released this month in the U.S. and Canada. Tim is a senior columnist at the Financial Times and the presenter of Radio 4's More or Less, the series 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, and the podcast Cautionary Tales. He's an associate member of Newfield College, Oxford, and an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. Tim, thank you so much for being here again. Well, thank you. Thank you, Esmeri. It's, it's great to be back on the program. You So one of the things you do is that you write this regular column for the Financial Times where you often are sort of helping people make sense of various kinds of data or stats. Could you talk a bit about sort of how you decide what data you want to write about and sort of how you figure out what the story is that you want to tell your readers? Sure. I think it's really changed over the last year. So if you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have said, uh, you know, I, I notice things in the world around me that I think bring up interesting questions in social science. I'm trained as an economist, but I'm interested in science, psychology, statistics, uh, interesting ideas. Maybe I read a, a preprint that's come out of the National Bureau of Economic Research or a study that's come out of a think tank. And I pick it up and that's that would be the basis. And I would start with that work and start by trying to connect it to other things I know about and, and translating it into a language that, that, that my readers understand. But more recently, of course, we've all been trying to understand the coronavirus pandemic. And so from the start, I was trying to get on top of the data, understand what that data was telling us and explain to my readers some of the key issues and answer answer the most important questions. So early on, for example, the, the central question was, well, how, how dangerous is this really? Yeah. And could it be that there are lots and lots of undiscovered cases if so, it's a lot less dangerous than we think, and it's a lot more widespread than we think, and we'll be at herd immunity by last spring. Well, turns out we weren't, but it wasn't. But it wasn't ridiculous to think that in March. So just exploring, you know, what what do and don't we know from the data? And the central thing is, I have questions, and I I want my questions answered. And if I think it's interesting, and, and I want to understand this, then I I believe that my readers will also find it interesting and I suppose that is the common theme before and since the pandemic started. Yeah I think you've just you've identified kind of one of the things that motivates our our selection of episodes for the podcast. I mean it's a, if, if there's someone we want to talk to and we think it's an interesting topic it's, it's a great place to start. Uh, I'm duly flattered by that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well I, I very much enjoy your writing. I, I I have to, you know, I confess that I, I, I love how quickly you're able to turn this around. I mean, I, well, thank the, you, the, 
Yeah. And, and being able to do this on a weekly basis, I mean, this is nightmarish in terms of, oh, Lord, I've got to get another one out. But I, I, one of the, 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 the recent articles that you wrote, one of the columns that we said, that where, what have we learned from the great working at home experiment? That was the title of the post that, and the, article, the, the column that you wrote. And that, that really was one that I thought, wow, I mean, that, that drew me in. So, so can you recap sort of what are some of the insights that, that you kind of explored and, and you came to in looking at, at this question? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try and remember. Although I have to say, John, you didn't you didn't give me advance notice you were going to ask me about this. And one of the things about being a journalist is, since I wrote that piece, I think was was probably the first piece published this year. We're having this conversation uh, just after Valentine's Day, and so that piece was then published six weeks ago. So that's six columns ago. It was written, I think, before Christmas. Okay. So it's written eight columns ago. I've also since then. I've presented six episodes of More or Less, and I've presented oh, eight episodes of How to Vaccinate the World. So just to give you a sense of, you know, if, but I think this is pertinent to your question because we're talking about this turnaround. Yes, like, yes. I, you know, I'm on yeah. to the next thing. It is actually a very interesting topic. It was motivated partly by my own reflections on my own experience. And there's a fascinating economist out there, Nicholas Bloom, who's done various bits of work with various people trying to put data on our intuitions. So he, one of the things that he did early on, way before the pandemic, was to run a randomized controlled trial with a Chinese travel company. Um. And they were experimenting with working from home because they thought it would save them on rent. And there were some surprises that emerged from that study. And it was an interesting opportunity for me to talk about, I don't think I used these words, I'm pretty sure I didn't use these words, but both internal and external validity mm. of mm. that study. That, mm. And because I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily delivering a statistics class, I didn't use the words, but the, the fact that because it's a randomized controlled trial, it gives us a very high degree of confidence that what we've spotted there is real. But it also raises questions. It was pre-pandemic, it's in China, it's a call center, yeah. Uh, therefore, what does that tell us, for example, about people who work in retail in America or in accountancy in Europe? Maybe not a lot or maybe something. And I was able to, to gesture towards those questions without nice. using all the technical terms. So, Tim, I'm interested in uh, the relationship. This, after all, is called Stats and Stories, the relationship of telling stories about data and how you see that relationship, the importance of sort of narratives and explaining data, and j just more about your process, how you sort of think through the structure of the, the data that you're trying to explain. Yeah, it varies very much depending on the different medium that I'm using. Mm. So a classic Financial Times column probably doesn't have a strong story to it. It's 850 words. I need to have some kind of thesis, some question I'm answering, something I'm arguing, or at least something I'm exploring. And there may be a little, then you know, there might be a little protagonist, there might be a little anecdote, a little hook. But mostly, I'm I'm going through what does the evidence show us. So to give you the the one that's top of my head, which hasn't been published yet, uh, I, I wrote one recently about what is the cost of all these schools being closed for all this time. And I began with a little story about my son, who's nine, uh, being in tears on a Zoom call because he couldn't answer the questions because the, the teacher had scrolled the questions up too fast and he couldn't get her attention. So you get the little, that personal interest and people go, oh yeah, I can imagine being a nine-year-old boy not being able to see the exams, uh, the, the questions. 
But then I'm into, okay, what do we know? And we've got the Center for Longitudinal Studies here in the UK doing quite serious work on who is actually doing the homeschooling. Is it the mums or the dads? Everyone says, everyone thinks it's the mums. What does the data show? Actually, the data shows, yeah, it's it's the mums. But but, we, <laughs> but it's good to it's good to actually be sure rather than we we got these assumptions. Uh, so for um, mothers of primary school age children, that's uh, eleven or younger, it's five hours a, a day, on average. So there's a lot of people doing full time. Clearly, for fathers, it's two hours a day, which is not nothing, not trivial, but it's clearly a lot less. And for secondary school, so that's 11 to 18, uh, mothers two hours a day, fathers one hour a day. But we're able to, I didn't linger on the details, but I'm able to pull that out of, a, out of a report, link to the report, people can follow it up. And so throughout that column, I'm, I'm saying, okay, here's data we've got on mental health, here's data we've got on uh, achievement of children, how much are they learning. I can give the links, I can explain it, and I'm really just giving people a... Um, hopefully a fresh summary of the literature. But an alternative is to say, for example, with the Cautionary Tales podcast, here is a, here's a story I want to tell you. It absolutely starts with a story. The story is an excuse for me to talk a little bit about social science, but the social science might be three, four minutes, and the story might be half an hour. So that's a totally different format. And one of the things I love about my job is I get to do both. Yeah, I, I really like how, how you've integrated in, into your columns in, in terms of how you present material, kind of s some surprises of how you frame frame summaries. Uh, an example that, I, 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 that really struck me when I was reading, you, you wrote a, the article, COVID-19, How Close is the Light at the End of the Tunnel? And as I was reading along in, in this article, you said, COVID-19 is overwhelmingly a disease that spares the under 60s. Yes, and I really liked the framing of that. Instead of say, talking about the disease where you have this incredible susceptibility and fatality rates, much higher fatality rates in an old, the, the older community that gets it, you, you, you flipped it. So I, I, I love the turn of phrase. I love the focus. And I'd like to, to hear what some of your thought process that, that, got, that led you to that. Uh, well, thank you, John. I'm glad, I'm glad you noticed that one. So that was a... <laughs> It was a response to, a, so I wasn't conscious in choosing that turn of phrase, but I was very conscious of what, of the turns of phrase I was rejecting. Yeah. So the initial, what I initially said is it's a disease that overwhelmingly kills the elderly, which is true in that the elderly are overwhelmingly more at risk than the young, but it's not true in the sense that, I mean, even if you're 90 years old you, and you get COVID, you're more likely to survive than to die. So to say it overwhelmingly kills the elderly is is ambiguous and potentially highly misleading. So, okay, well, what do I say then? Well, you know, and I sort of played around with different things, but in the end I said, well, hang on, the and, and also I was framing it as a piece of good news. So yeah, um, yeah. the good news is the vaccines are highly effective, even if you only have a small number of doses delivered. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the elderly are most at risk and there aren't very many of them, so you don't need many vaccines to protect them. And But then I'm going, well, if I'm trying to present this as good news and the good news is this disease kills these people, well, that's no good. That's not good news. Right? So, so, so we sort of twisting around. And in the end, I found the way, I forget the exact turn of phrase, but this idea that it spares the young. Look, yeah. if it spares the young, all you need to do is protect the elderly. And, and the vaccine is already doing a tremendous amount of good. So that, I think, by a process of elimination is where I ended up. Very good. 
I want to speak up for the elderly here. I get my second Pfizer vaccine Monday. So, oh, that's uh, very not to hear it, Richard. In, in Ohio, 87% of the deaths are over 65. Yeah. And uh, so we're, and, you know, I, I think our governor here is doing a pretty good job. I worry that the vaccine won't be there because I have to drive 40 miles to, to get it. That's where I found the closest place that would give me an appointment. So. It's yeah. been interesting, for sure. Yeah. Well, the evidence does suggest that the the, the first dose is probably pretty efficacious. Um, for for but but I mean that is something that I've explored in my radio show and in my columns. And that question of how uh, w what is the wisdom of postponing the second dose for these vaccines that turns out to be a really interesting question. And we we economists, I think, are maybe more used to more used to talking about this sort of thing than the the hardcore epidemiologists because all, all the evidence-based medicine people are saying you know we've got no data on what happens if you if you don't give the Pfizer vaccine after three weeks and the economists the, the economists are going yeah yeah sure we don't have any data but we we can make an educated guess like well we shouldn't guess well yeah, but if you spaced out the second dose, you could vaccinate twice as many people in the short term, and, and thousands of people are dying every week. I mean, see, I don't know what the latest data in the States is, but, you know, 10,000 a week, there was a time when it was more, many more than 10,000 a week. You could save a lot of people's lives. You know, are you really not willing to speculate? So that was a very interesting question to discuss, um, the first versus second dose question, or the postponing the first dose question, and to say, what do we know from high-quality evidence what are we? What is an educated guess, and what is completely unknown, and how do we balance those things? And I wrote a column about that. That I came down sort of saying, in the end, we need to run more trials. But while we're waiting for more trials to be run, I think it's reasonable to postpone the second dose. But hopefully, my readers will have been able to read that column and say, "Oh, interesting. Given what you say, I disagree with your conclusion." <laughs> That's what I would hope because I don't see it as my role to persuade people very often. I, I see it as my role to inform people and they can reach their own conclusions. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today our guest is Tim Harford, whose latest book, The Data Detective, was just released earlier this month. Tim, before we started this conversation, you mentioned, since we're talking about vaccinations, this new project that you're working on, How to Vaccinate the World. Could you explain what that is and sort of what the goal of that is? It's a really interesting uh, departure for me. So I realized that the really the coolest radio shows and podcasts out there involve a, a panel of uh, four people discussing the issues. And <laughs> I can think of any in particular. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 let me count here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just thought to myself, yeah, we should do that. So I mean, clearly, I, I wasn't the only person to, to think this, but the, the BBC decided we want a show about vaccines and the format they picked was me and three people who actually know what they're talking about and the three people who know what they're talking about vary from week to week epidemiologists uh, economists who studied vaccine incentives vaccine manufacturers uh, bioethicists science journalists and so on and each week we pick up a you know, an important issue. So the, this week we will be working on this question of variants and what do we do? Mm. What's the interaction of these variants with vaccines? And we'll we'll talk about you know what is a variant? How is it different from a strain or a mutation? I, and I I don't know, but by the time we finished recording the program, I hope I will know. How quickly can we adjust the vaccines? What's the process for 
for modifying these vaccines? What are the obstacles? What are the potential snags? How worried should we be? So we have half an hour discussing those sorts of issues. We put some listeners' questions to the experts. The conversation goes on probably for an hour, and then my long-suffering producer will edit it all down. Uh, <laughs> and that's really interesting for me because my other radio work, I had a, a podcast called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, which is very scripted. It's an essay by me illustrated by music. Cautionary Tales, again, it's a, it's a tightly scripted story with actors contributing. More or less is a program about uh, stats, and it's, it's again, tightly scripted. Uh, Pre-done interviews that are tightly edited. You might talk to somebody for half an hour, and you come out with two minutes of material. Oh, wow. So this is, this is different. It's, it's a slightly compressed live interview. Uh, sort of edited down a little bit to make it more digestible. So very interesting for me as a journalist, a lot of it's in the preparation. You know, what questions am I going to ask? Um, yeah, but, you know, you guys have forgotten more about this than I will ever know. But, but, but it's, it's a fun format because you're able to respond in an authoritative way and also hopefully in quite a friendly way to the issues of the day. The challenge, of course, is you never know quite how the guests are going to work out and some are amazing and we're like we want them every week and some guests are like uh, you know we they were great on the phone and then when we actually got them on the show they they stiffened up a bit and you do this reminds me of infinite monkey cage which is one of my favorite podcasts where brian cox and robert ince interview various scientists but they usually included a comedian as part of the panel but it's like i feel like (laughs) i've learned so much that i that i should have understood as an adult from listening to that because it does feel like very accessible and and friendly and i feel like i'm getting an education without sort of being lectured it's an absolutely terrific show and and uh robin actually robin very kindly uh wrote a really nice review of how to vaccinate the world just the other day so he's he's very much in my good books he's he's great Uh, the difference i suppose with infinite monkey cage and how to vaccinate the world it's partly that they you know they have this more comic element so they've got they've got a comedian as one of their hosts and a comedian as one of their guests but also that they will pick a more general topic, like let's talk about what we can learn about uh, human history from the fossil record. And they can record that two months ago, three months ago, six months ago, and it's still fresh, yeah. whereas we are trying to, to follow the news. So that's, our, that's the extra discipline we have, um, which in some sense makes it more difficult, but in some ways makes it easier, since you don't need to work so hard to tell people why they should be interested in the show. They're like, oh, this is exactly the question I was hoping someone would answer this week. <laughs> Hey, Tim, I'm interested in uh, kind of a broader question. How do, how do we reach or get to, in, in the States, we have about a third of our population, adult population, that believes the election was rigged, you know, that don't believe in getting vaccinated, uh, that wear ignorance is kind of a badge of honor, uh, follow our former president's lead, uh, just trust your gut. Mm-hmm. So how I think that's the sort of larger problem going forward is is the sort of anti-science, anti-data waves that are out there. I don't know if it's as bad in the UK. I know it's pretty much everywhere now. And we have a lot of authoritarian leaders who trust their gut. Uh, yeah. Do you do you have any strategies about what do we do about this sort of larger problem about disinformation? It's, it's a huge issue, and it is one of the reasons why I wrote my book, The Data Detective. I suppose the first thing to say is, 
we should all try and get our own heads straight first. So, so people ask me a lot about how do I persuade other people? And, <laughs> and my, my response is always, well, let's just let's make sure you're thinking straight first. Once you're happy, you're thinking straight, then maybe you can get on with trying to get help other people think straight. But um, we're all capable of fooling ourselves. Uh, you said you suggested that, that there was an anti-science or anti-data movement. And I think that that is that can be over that can be overemphasized. What, what I would say more is that people are interpreting the science and the data very much through their own lenses and those lenses are highly influenced by their own social groups and by their political affiliation and so on so uh, for example a i mean republicans tend to be very skeptical about uh, climate change and the threat of climate change but i think most people adopting that position especially more educated who are more skeptical about climate change by the way the more educated they are the more the wider this polarization is which i think is interesting they would not say oh, i'm anti-science they would say, well, I, you know, these are the scientists that I respect. This is the data that I should pay attention to. And, I've, and they would find some reason to say that, well, your scientists are wrong and your data is wrong. So it's a more complex thing than simply rejecting science. It's, it's more being very selective about the voices that you listen to and the, the data you pay attention to. And I mean, my book has various pieces of, of advice the most important, I suppose, is simply to to begin by being curious and looking at the data as a way to inform you about the world rather than looking at the data as a way to win an argument. Uh, and we all, you know, we all want to win arguments. We all want to persuade other people that we're right and win them over to our point of view. But that's that's rarely... An attitude that helps it may help other people sometimes but it's, it's never going to help you be smarter you are always going to be smarter if instead you're putting yourself in the position of trying to understand how the world works i i find it very much a challenge to think that that you know what 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 will change anybody's mind what will change my mind about something and you know yeah. and I, that's that's not a trivial task and and uh, you know the one thing this show has has taught me or reinforced for me is that uh you know it's not data doesn't convince will not convince people to change yeah, it's one thing that I one thing I tried to to do is that I think does is intriguing is to ask people instead of having an argument with somebody and trying to persuade them to ask them to explain their position. Don't not even to justify their position, but just explain yeah. their position. Um, what data are you looking at? What is it? That, what is it that? What is it that makes you think that um, vaccines are not safe? What, what, is the, what is your source of information there? Just explain that to me. And sometimes when you open up like that to people, they will end up talking themselves round to a more sensible point of view because it's simply faced with this person who's listening and paying attention. Yeah. They realize, oh, actually, now I come to explain this. Maybe I didn't really understand it as well as I thought. But even if that's not the case, at least you've shown them some respect yes. and that is a more constructive way of arguing than trying to dismiss what they say and you know and convince them i say this it's really hard i mean i i i find it yeah. very very difficult to be patient with for example uh well i've no patience with anti-vaxxers and i do find it i struggle with people who are vaccine hesitant for example because i think the vaccine these are vaccines are amazing 
the world has been burning for a year and now we have the solution and you're like you you're not so sure but <laughs> i but i but it doesn't help it doesn't help no, to lose no. your cool and no. so i try to be calm and i try to be respectful there, there's a point in your book where you sort of remind readers of the importance of sort of gut check like you know how is the data making you feel yeah. And sort of how are you emotionally responding to the data as you're trying to make sense of it? Why? I mean, that sort of feels kind of semi-related. Like, but why is like understanding our emotional response important in this situation? Yeah, I mean, that, it's the the very first chapter of the book. And I think it's the one that's most surprising in the context of, you know, all your classic guides to statistics. There are loads of great guides to statistics. I don't think any of the others have this piece of advice. Um, when you reflect on the experience of the last few years, you reflect on the last two presidential elections, you think about people's views on climate change or vaccines or in my home country, Brexit, you just think about it and you realize we're emotional creatures. You know, human beings are emotional, emotional and we believe what we believe largely because of who we trust, what our friends believe and what our what our instincts are, what our emotion, what our values are, what our emotions tell us, what we want to be true, what we expect to be true. These are huge influences on the data we choose to pay attention to and the data we choose to reject. And that's true even for scientists. There's this famous talk by Richard Feynman pointing out how long it took physicists to realize uh, that Robert Millikan's estimate of the charge on an electron was not quite right. And it's because every time they came up with something that agreed with Millikan, they were like, oh, yeah, of course. And every time they came up with something that disagreed with Millikan, they were like, mm, we're not so sure about that. <laughs> so, you know, and that's scientists. And it's, no one has passionate views about the charge on an electron. I mean, it's not like, it's not like um, you know, capital punishment or gun rights or something. So the reason I say, look, notice your emotional reaction is because we all have them. They influence our thinking. You can't suppress it. You shouldn't ignore it. You should notice it. And once you've noticed it, counted to three, taken a deep breath, maybe you can then go back to the original tweet that you were about to retweet or block, headline you were about to discard or share with everybody. And you're now in a position where you're thinking a little bit more clearly. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Tim, thank you so much for joining us again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.